You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Detailing Addiction, I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Today in studio, I'm very pleased to have a personal friend and a very gifted, talented, nationally recognized attorney, Mark Seltzer. His practice is in uh, Philadelphia, but he practices all over the United States and has a very specific practice that I think is going to be of some interest to our listeners because he works a lot with folks who have the disease of addiction. Interestingly... Mr. Seltzer is a graduate of the University of Pittsburgh for undergraduate and uh, graduated from Temple Law School. He is listed as a super lawyer in um, in the um, uh, awards that are given to attorneys and uh, a recognition of the great work and um, the body of work that he has done. He's a gifted speaker and spends a lot of time at conferences educating doctors, lawyers, other interested parties in um, in the disease of addiction and how it does affect the practice of medicine and other careers that may require a license. In addition to all of that, he is an honorary member of the American Society of Addiction Medicine, which I'm very pleased, um, and he spoke last year at the National Conference. So very happy to have you with us today, Mark. Thank you Thank for you, being Dr. here. Thank you, Dr. Blank. So glad you're here. And we also have with us from the Atlanta Healing Center, David Donaldson. And David, of course, is the CEO and clinical director of the Atlanta Healing Center. So welcome, David. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I would like all of our listeners to have pen and paper available. As we go through the program today, I will be giving you some contact information for Mr. Seltzer's law firm. I think it's really helpful not only if you absolutely need his services, but there's a lot of interesting links and references and information for people about our subject today. So, um, first of all, if you are interested, the website is Seltzer Legal. Dot com. That's S-E-L-T-Z-E-R legal, L-E-G-A-L dot com. And you can also reach their practice at area code 888-699-4222. If you didn't get that, we'll give you that information again. But I'd like to start off with a question. Tell us about your practice and why you might be on this show today. Thank you, Dr. Blank. Um, I'm actually very proud of what I and uh, my law firm do. Um, It's a niche practice that we've Mm -hmm. developed over the years. Um, And what we do is we represent doctors, uh, other licensed professionals, lawyers, business executives that are disabled, and we help them get private disability benefits. And by that, I'm, I'm not referring to Social Security, private disability benefits. The largest part of the practice is addiction and psychiatric based, so that somewhere in the neighborhood of about uh, two-thirds to 75% of our cases um, are clients that are suffering from addiction and psychiatric illness that need help uh, getting their benefits. Um, If uh, I can just say something. Absolutely, please. I am extremely honored to do uh, what I do, um, and our firm as well, uh, to do what we do and to really help 
people that are very sick um, in some way uh, mm-hmm. put the, the pieces of their lives back together and go forward in a healthy, constructive uh, direction. So we're, we're very, very fortunate as a firm to do what we do. I first met um, Mr. Seltzer a number of years ago when I was actually working at the Talbot Recovery Campus many years ago, and there were a number of um, healthcare professionals that were in treatment there that were also clients of yours. And of course, we're not going to divulge any of their uh, information, but I was really impressed, and in fact, I had no idea even being in the addiction field, being a psychiatrist, and being working with healthcare professionals, I had no idea that um, this kind of disability was first available and sometimes kind of hard to get. So can you explain a little bit about what you mean by the disability um, insurance and benefits and, um, and how that supports someone in their recovery? That's a very, very good Big point <laughs> because... Firstly, um, a lot of doctors, a lot of uh, professionals don't even realize, mm-hmm. um, well, to start with, uh, what policies they have um, and certainly what, the, what those policies require in order to get benefits. Secondly, uh, a lot of them don't realize that they can file a claim as a result of suffering from uh, addiction and psychiatric illness and or. Um, and those claims can be perfectly payable, of course, if they satisfy the, the contract language. Um, yes, uh, addiction can be a, a disabling condition, but quite honestly, the claims tend to be difficult. Um, mm-hmm. In the, I don't want to say old days, but in former days, uh, we've been doing this a while, um, it was addiction was not as easily accepted mm-hmm. as a disabling condition, and and people quite honestly were um, uh, very embarrassed about it, even uh, suffering from psychiatric illness, and, and tended not to want to talk about it, get treated for it, uh, virtually live their lives in, in in a closet if they uh, suffered from it. So certainly, um, the, the, you know, fast forward, doctors. Uh, oftentimes don't realize having these problems, these issues, these uh, suffering from the disease of addiction, that they would be eligible to um, file a claim and be paid uh, benefits. The companies are have become much more um, uh, contemporary in their thought process, the courts as well, where uh, I'd like to believe anyway that the disease model of addiction mm-hmm. has been accepted by the by the disability insurance companies as well as the court system. Um, so at least to that extent, uh, that has been achieved. However, uh, quite honestly, if you if you read a lot of the decisions, there's a court decision that's not that old. Um, it's a 2008 uh, decision that I talk about all, oftentimes, the Stanford case. Um, and if you read the language that is written in that decision by a federal court judge, you would be astounded as to really what the thought process is. The old character defect, the person wow. that should have known better, um, the judge in that case points out that uh, while he can understand that the, um, the uh, cardiac-prone surgeon uh, may have a problem and could very well be disabled as a result of the possibility of going into the OR and having, ex- having an exacerbation of the cardiac condition, and therefore 
uh, totally disabled from being able to perform their duties as a surgeon, that somehow doesn't apply uh, to, for example, in that case, it's a nurse anesthetist or, or an anesthesiologist, because somehow the judge um, got into the choice issue, where it's remained Stanford's choice to use or not use, and had no conception of, of the, the compulsion and the lack of control that, as we well know, is part of the disease. So, yes, addiction can be uh, a disabling uh, condition, of course, subject to uh, whatever limitations or exclusions or um, appropriate uh, policy language has to be um, satisfied in order to get those benefits. Mm-hmm. So, um most people, I think, probably listening are wondering, well, what kind of insurance is this? Certainly this doesn't come under my health care policy. Does this come under my life insurance? Is this specific insurance that uh, someone might have that they would buy as a separate policy, or is it included in some other insurance that they might not be aware of? Essentially, there are two kinds of coverage, and okay. I'm just talking in basics here. One would be what we refer to as a long-term disability policy, an mm-hmm. LTD policy, which is part of usually part of an employee benefit package. I see. And when we're talking about doctors, it would be a doctor that is a part of a large group mm-hmm. that offers that coverage. Um, and almost always, if they're an employee of a uh, higher learning institution or a hospital as part of the employee benefit package, that long-term disability coverage would be provided. Secondly would be individual disability insurance benefits, individual disability income benefits that would be purchased by the doctor, lawyer, business person, the insured, um, from their insurance mm-hmm. person. Oftentimes they, uh, they're solicited by uh, insurance people when they're in residency and they feel very bothered, but some of the times they, those, uh, those people bothering them have really done right by them and uh, these mm-hmm. policies have become a, a lifesaver. So those are the two kinds of policies. Um, uh, there are some uh, similarities, but there's a lot of differences. Mm-hmm. A long-term disability policy is almost always controlled by ERISA, Mm-hmm. which is a federal statute, Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974. And um, interestingly, uh, I talk about this when I make presentations at, uh, at medical conferences, I think that it started off being a very good thing in 1974, and it was a good intent by Congress. Um, unfortunately, it's become a tool of the insurance companies um, in order to be able to limit claims. Um, the, the federal statute is controlling. Uh, there is a, if in the event of an adverse decision, there is an appeals process that must be followed. If you don't follow that to the T, you can lose your right to sue, which would be in federal oh. court. Um, uh, the the policies tend to be much more restrictive in terms of the policy language. There are limitations um, and some exclusions that are built into the policy, all with the intention of limiting the benefit. And even if the benefit is is obtained uh, and is paid, there are offsets that would apply. So, for example. If one of our clients is, uh, we've gotten them paid under their long-term disability policy, and also they qualify for Social Security disability, that Social Security benefit would be offset 
against whatever the benefit amount would be in the long-term disability policy so that it's again it is the, the policies are written in a way to limit or reduce uh, the amount of money that the insurance companies have to pay. And uh, I guess at this point I can mention a very Im- important issue. When we're talking about addiction and psychiatric illness, almost all group policies, long-term disability policies, have what's called a mental nervous and or a drug and alcohol limitation built into the policy, which is generally two years. Mm-hmm. So if the poli- if the claim is for addiction or for psych or both, um, certainly the company would act to employ that two-year limitation. So the worst-case scenario for the company would be an exposure of having to pay the claim for two years. For two years. And there are a couple of things which I'm not going to go into which can possibly extend it. Okay. Um, We're going to take a break now. When we come back, we're going to learn more about um, this very important topic and have your pen and paper ready. And thanks for listening. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. Elena George. Join me Wednesday mornings from 9 to 10 a.m. for Medicine on Call, a show dedicated to exploring the medical, social, and political aspects of our health care system in order to find solutions. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. 
Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction, and I'm Dr. Susan Blank. You're listening to America's Web Radio, and today in studio with me, I have David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center, and I have Mark Seltzer, who is an attorney. His practice is actually located in Philadelphia, but he has uh, clients, and um, he works all over the United States, speaks um constantly on this topic because it is very specific and I think this points out that sometimes it is really crucially important and in my work with professionals that have um, addiction or psychiatric related uh, illnesses one of the um, the difficulties that I see happen over and over again is that they have a family friend who's an attorney they have a neighbor and well-meaning attempting to do the right thing but sometimes it makes a huge huge problem and um, right before the break we were talking about the different types of policies and I have to tell you a story that happened to me when I first went into private practice I um, had small children and I was very concerned and I contacted an insurance company to get a disability policy and he said well what kind of physician are you and I said I'm a psychiatrist and he said well The good news and the bad news. The good news is the policy won't be very expensive. The bad news is probably the only way to be disabled as a psychiatrist is you would have to be both blind and deaf. You could lose all of your limbs, all of your body parts. You could be critically ill, but as long as you could hear and or see, you can do your job. And he talked me out of getting a disability policy. I wish you all could see Mr. Seltzer's face as he's shaking his head. So what's wrong with that picture? What is wrong with that picture? <laughs> Besides the fact I don't have First disability First of all, it's not a true statement. <laughs> We've had plenty of psychiatrists that have been disabled for lots of different reasons that we have gotten paid mm-hmm. under their policies. And were they blind and deaf? No. Or? Okay. <laughs> None of which were blind or deaf. Yeah. So if, if we can continue. Please. Uh, the difference between the, yes. the two policies. And I'm sorry. No. The other policy Uh that we refer to is an individual disability insurance policy. Um, Those policies, as I said earlier, are purchased directly by the doctor or whomever the uh, insured happens to be. Um, They can buy coverage consistent with uh, whatever the insurance um, underwriter guidelines are. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the policies almost invariably are better policies. They're written better. Uh, they, uh, they don't have a lot of the limitations built into them that, uh, uh, that LTD policies have. The language is often more liberal, mm-hmm. and um, it's generally easier to, to get paid uh, for those mm-hmm. policies. And there's, uh, you know, and a, as I said, because of the, the standards, the, the language not being as, as strict, and, and one um, uh, important issue that we were talking about on the break is there's something called uh, insurance bad faith, uh, which, which would be what? we have in uh, – it's uh, essentially an unfounded, unreasonable um, uh, paying of a claim uh, with uh, willful intent, with where the insurance company is putting its own interests first and the insured's 
not first. Mm-hmm. Um, and the language varies from state to state, but it's essentially the same. Um, that is available in individual, if there's a problem, if there's that sort of problem in an individual disability income um, uh, policy and mm-hmm. claim. However, it is not available um, during the course of a long-term disability uh, uh, claim or through those policies as a result of ERISA. And as we were saying, ERISA is a federal law that supersedes the state law, mm-hmm. and there is no right, and this has been legislated, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, this has been litigated, um, there is no right to, to state insurance pay, uh, bad faith under ERISA claims. So that is uh, a big hammer that is, that is gone, and um, if the insurance companies wanted to, uh, let me put it that way, um, they can really uh, do pretty much view claims any way they want and not pay claims, uh, oftentimes for baseless reasons. And the worst case scenario, uh, more often than not, is paying the claim, maybe with a little interest, maybe some council fees, but just paying the claim. So, you know, with the, with the more strict language, uh, the company-friendly um, court decisions, as well as no bad faith, uh, it, it, it allows them sometimes to handle things in a way that I think is, is not the right way. So for somebody that's dealing with a, with a long-term disability, disability policy, I can't get the words out, not necessarily a profess- professional, but just anybody who has went through their business, um, the insurance company is somewhat motivated to say no to the claim. And it, for anybody, it would behoove them to talk to a lawyer. Yes, they are very motivated to say no, and we can go into reasons if, you, if you'd like, but they're very noti- uh, motivated to say no for on the basis of what I just said. Right. And another interesting fact, as I said, uh, our practice is uh, pretty much limited to doctors, business executives, lawyers, which tend to uh, have larger benefits, larger mm-hmm. claims. There are so many claims out there for um, factory workers, um, blue-collar workers, and so forth that may work in a factory and have a have the same policy as part of their employee benefit package. But since the benefit is predicated upon the amount of income that someone is earning in that job, which is generally, more often than not, about 60%. So the benefit is about 60% of mm-hmm. what their uh, income is up to a certain cap. Once you get to the average person that may be making $25,000, dollars $40,000, and when you do the math, then when you're deducting uh, the offsets, whether it's Social Security or workers' compensation, which is often uh, the issue um, in those types of cases, yeah. you get down to a claim that's so minimal that the companies can afford to do whatever they want. And because there's not just looking at it realistically, the claim doesn't have enough value to be able to litigate, let alone handle um, oftentimes, and it's it's very very sad. It's very upsetting to me um, that uh, that they, that the insurance companies can get away with this, and a lot of really good people that are very deserving of these benefits are not getting pay, uh, paid. And the truth of the matter the, the matter is, we get a lot of those calls um, by people whose claims that we we can handle, 
and we try to help them out as much as we can. I've actually given out a lot of free um, advice and to, to those people to help them mm-hmm. be able to uh, handle things maybe a little bit better on their own. Because we'll get a, a lot of those calls also in terms of people who are trying to get an evaluation or to, to get a doctor to help them to qualify or to keep remain qualified, and, you know, they're really struggling just to keep the benefit. And for many of these people, it's, it's you know, a mortgage payment and daily living. Yes. And speaking of the individual, um, some of the policies, I believe, are specific for the type of work that you do. Um, So if you are an anesthesiologist or if you are a surgeon or um, if you have other um, very specific specialization, um, sometimes the policies are written for that particular profession. Is that correct? Did I get that right? Yes, you got that right. Um, The better policies that are issued to the professional group that we're talking about, more likely than not, are called own occupation policies. Mm -hmm. And what that means is they're being insured um, for the against the inability to perform and the way the policies read would say material and substantial duties or important duties or principal duties or essential duties all the same depending on the company um, from being insured for the inability to perform those material and substantial duties of their own occupation own occupation um, is the occupation that they are performing at the time they become disabled not at the time they took the policy out, which is a very common mistake that a lot of our clients make. Um, In some circumstances, you may have an orthopedic surgeon that Mm -hmm. graduates from medical school and goes through training, residency, and fellowship, whatever, and is an orthopedic surgeon and and takes a policy out. And And when they take the application out, they fill it out, I'm an orthopedic surgeon, and the underwriters issue that policy ensuring that doctor for the inability to perform his or her duties mm-hmm. as um, a as an orthopedic surgeon. However, that doctor, in the course of his or her career, may change. They may decide to be a uh, go into forensics right. and be an expert witness. They may be the medical director of a hospital, um, and there are lots of other things they can do. They may be speaking for pharmaceutical companies. They may go into more of an mm-hmm. entrepreneurial direction where they're Research. running. Mm-hmm. Yes. So the snapshot as to what their occupation was at the time Ooh. the policy was taken out often can change. Now, fast forward, you have that typical uh, doctor client suffering from addiction, psychiatric illness, comes to us, files a claim, and says, well, there's no way I can go in the, in the OR um, as a result of my addiction and psychiatric illness, so uh, I don't think there should be a problem getting paid under, the, un- under my policy because I'm insured as an orthopedic surgeon. Well, you're not insured as an orthopedic surgeon any longer. What you're insured at is what you're doing now. You're, you're a medical director of the hospital. So the way that your claim will be evaluated as to what your duties are and how the addiction and psychiatric illness would negatively impact your ability to pro- perform those duties is totally different oh than at goodness. the time you took the policy uh-huh. out. So that's how you have to look at it. So yes, own occupation at the time you become disabled. Now, the LTD policies for 
our group of clients um, would be sort of, uh, let's call it a modified own occupation um, definition. The definition of disability would go something like inability to perform the material and substantial duties of your own occupation. Let's say that's the same anesthesiologist Mm -hmm. that's working for the hospital, but it would go on to say, and not working. So if that doctor is working, then even in another occupation, there is a, an off. There is a uh, a provision where uh, it's a essentially an income replacement scenario. Whatever you're doing, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to learn more about all the ways in which disability can affect you if you have addiction. Please stay tuned. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. Elena George. Join me Wednesday mornings from 9 to 10 a.m. for Medicine on Call, a show dedicated to exploring the medical, social, and political aspects of our healthcare system in order to find solutions. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and this is America's Web Radio. Today we have in studio with us Mark Seltzer, who's an attorney from Philadelphia who has a practice that specializes in working with folks who are having issues with uh, disability. This could be a psychiatric, this could be addiction, this could be other types of disability. If you would like more information about his practice, you can go to the web, and go to seltzerlegal.com, S-E-L-T-Z-E-R-L-E-G-A-L.com, or you can call them at 
1-800-222-8222. If you missed all that, please check um, the American, or excuse me, the Atlanta Healing Center's website, and you'll also have a link to his contact information. So before the break, we were talking about occupation-specific kinds of disabilities and the different ways in which policies might be written. And you were talking about um, another policy that might be um, in place for someone. Yes, the the long-term disability policy is pretty much um, if someone is working. Mm-hmm. becomes a residual, what's called a residual disability claim or a partial disability claim, essentially. So it's more of an income replacement policy. And to simplify it, sometimes those policies have what's called a return to work provision, which pays a increased benefit for usually a year after returning to work if there's an earning capacity. Mm-hmm. But essentially, if someone uh, is able to return to some work mm-hmm. and is making 50% as much as they were making prior to becoming disabled, the benefit would be 50%. In an individual policy, uh, a good individual policy, it would say inability to perform material and substantial duties of your own occupation, and there's always a physician's care requirement as as secondary uh, provision of that that, um, definition that has to be satisfied. But in that situation... um, what we're looking at is whether or not you can perform the duties of that occupation, which I said is what you were performing at the time you became disabled. If you can return to work in some other occupation, mm-hmm. um, you very well would be entitled to receive total disability, assuming you're approving that you're unable to work in the occupation that you're disabled from, that you were performing at the time you are disabled, yet still earn income uh, from some other occupation. So uh, what is what can be a, a typical scenario that we've dealt with? We may have a client, again, I'm picking on the anesthesiologist, but they happen to be the largest uh, specialty that we do represent. Mm-hmm. Anesthesiologist, um, uh, fentanyl addiction, psychiatric illness, um, possibly uh, one or more relapses, possibly more one or more um, inpatient uh, treatments, um, and, and so mm-hmm. forth, um, has that issue. Um, at this point, it cannot return back to anesthesiology. All the treatment providers are supporting that. Anybody involved mm-hmm. is supporting that. That doctor at that point um, may very well be entitled, assuming they can satisfy, the, we can help them satisfy the contract language, is entitled to receive total disability even if that doctor goes back, retrains, does a, a residency, fellowship, whatever, and becomes a, a, an addictionologist. Mm-hmm. which is a, a very typical scenario Often. where mm-hmm. our clients are suffering, um, they're helped by other people in, in the addiction network, and they want to give back. Uh, they feel they do have something to offer, although it's not going to be in anesthesiology. They go back, become retrained um, as an addictionologist. Mm-hmm. So that's typical. In that scenario, um, and it's I'm simplifying it, they very well would be entitled to total disability at the same time making whatever income they're making. Now, what's really um, most people don't understand, because especially going back to your insurance guy, (laughs) when insurance guys, and honestly, I think that I say this to most of our clients, thank, 
thank God that you had this uh, this insurance guy and that you mm-hmm. listened to him or her and that you bought the coverage because we wouldn't be having the conversation. Correct. And, and your and insurance guy. Not my insurance your guy. Your insurance guy Find didn't go that direction. Guy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the they very well could be, you know, satisfying the contract line, mm-hmm. which would be entitled to collect uh, the total disability simultaneous to earning an income and going in, in that direction. Um, now, as I was saying, what most people don't understand is it's it's much more difficult than the insurance po- person will point out. They will say something like, well, if you can't perform your duties as an anesthesiologist, you're going to get total disability. It doesn't matter what you do. Kind of, but not really. What the companies are looking at are the, firstly, what's the disabling condition? And we're talking about addiction. We're talking about psychiatric illness. How does that specifically uh, prevent or impair the ability to perform those specific duties? And we're looking, and using insurance company words, we're looking at what's called restrictions and limitations. Mm-hmm. Restrictions would be something that a treating doctor would tell their patient they shouldn't do, and a limitation is something that the patient can't do. Literally can't do. Yes. So the so, restriction so, would be like the medical board saying we're not going to. That's a whole different that, okay, issue. Okay, I won't go there. Uh, so, I, I'm happy to go there, but that's. <laughs> so, so the treating physician says we're not going to authorize you to go back into t- anesthesia because the risk of being around and having access to these medications are too dangerous. That that very well could be a restriction. Mm -hmm. Yes. Limitation, I can't go in there. I can't do it. I know I can't do it uh, for whatever the reason. So um, the point is we're looking at the condition and we're looking at the, the, the specific duties. How does that condition impair that specific duty? Mm-hmm. And if there is a, uh, a relationship between mm-hmm. the impairment of the duty and the condition, that condition would rise to the level of being, and I'm oversimplifying this, a disabling condition. Now, the question would be, if someone returns back to doing something else, and I use the, uh, the hypo as an addictionologist, if the person is suffering from, example, depression, how is it that the depression, the company would ask, how is it that the depression is disabling that person for performing their duties as, for example, an anesthesiologist, yet simultaneously allows them to perform their duties mm. as an addictionologist? So it's not quite as simple as right. the insurance consultant would suggest or the materials sometimes that the insurance companies um, provide would suggest. But that's what we have to do. That is what we have to do to show if we have that scenario, mm-hmm. how in that case the depression would prevent that particular doctor from performing their material substantial duties that they were doing at the time they became disabled, yet simultaneously allow them to go forward in another direction and perform another specialty. In in some of the situations I know that um Several of my uh, patients that I've worked with have had support from their um, disability insurance company to be able to retrain um, in that kind of a scenario, um, and they have made that choice. So what's your thought about that? There is always, I shouldn't say always, usually a provision in better policies um, under a recovery type 
um, and it's not always called that, but it's a recovery-type provision. It's really something, it's a vehicle to allow the company to make a deal with the insured. Mm -hmm. It's almost, even though it's in the contract, it's almost like an extra contractual deal. We're going to pay you, and of course I'm making this up, (laughs) we're going to pay you Mm -hmm. $50,000 for you to go back and train in that hypo as as an an addictionologist. Mm -hmm. Um, However, Here's, here are the terms. Number right. one, we're going to terminate your claim. And number two, mm-hmm. you will um, now have another occupation. So that going forward, your claim will be terminated. So we're no longer going to pay you for the inability to perform your duties as an anesthesiologist. And if um, there is an issue and you would relapse or there was some other disabling issue that would come up that would prevent you from being able to perform your duties, we would be looking at a change of occupation. So you're now an an addictionologist versus an anesthesiologist. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that maybe your audience can can take away from this, um, and I I hate being pragmatic. Oh, I love being pragmatic. (laughs) Honest about this. Insurance companies act in their best interest. Certainly. Not the best interest of their insureds, although we would like to believe we're in good hands. um, (laughs) They're acting in their own best interest. So from what you're talking about, they're not going to cut that deal unless it's in their best interest. Mm -hmm. And what's their best interest? Their best interest, especially if they're dealing with someone that has a history, um, and and they may be looking at a long-term claim, what's their best interest? Pay some money up front under the guise of trying to help someone right. in order to get a termination of the claim and a change of occupation. Because if we're dealing with addiction and psychiatric illness, not that we haven't had addictionologists that suffer from addiction and psychiatric they illness do. and gotten them mm-hmm. paid. But if you look at the those illnesses, mm-hmm. um, there's a much – uh, easier is the wrong word but it is easier to get someone paid if they're an anesthesiologist for those conditions as opposed to an addictionologist. And I don't want to say that it's not, it can't be a disabling condition from addictionologist, but you can see the, right. the, the issue. So that's why the insurance companies would do that, because it's in their best interest. Uh, what's in the best interest of, of their insured? To pay the claim. That's in their best interest. And so that would certainly be a scenario that before someone made that decision, they would need to consult someone like yourself to say, what is, what is, what is in my best interest? This is what's been offered to me. Absolutely. And coincidentally, I had someone that contacted our office that I dealt with personally, and it was very similar to mm-hmm. that. It was a situation where before the company accepted the claim, what they were doing was what we call in this area of, of law or, or business an advance pay and close. They wanted to pay this guy a certain amount of money, which was more than he actually was entitled to at that point in time, to go away. However, when you read the release that they had offered him and when, when you carefully read the letter, it was not something that, that he thought was being done on the up and up and in good faith. 
It was um, your claim will, will end. There, if you file another claim, it can't be done to a certain date. There will be a change of occupation. And what he didn't understand, because it was a group policy, if he had agreed to this deal, um, the release specifically said that we will deal with you as if you are a new employee. What does that mean? Under most long-term disability policies, there is a pre-existing condition clause called a 3 and 12 pre-ex, which means that if you're suffering from a condition within three months prior to the effective date of the policy, which is generally the date of hire, which disables you within 12 months after the date of hire, um, that condition will be excluded. So what they were offering was you take this money, you, you're, you're going to be a new employee, which means there's going to be a new pre-existing condition clause. Wow. So he would definitely be suffering from the condition within three months prior to the effective date, which meant that if he became disabled within in a year and filed a claim, they would exclude that claim from coverage, that condition from coverage. He would not be paid. Um, and there were other things that came into play. So, of course, he didn't, after consulting with me, he did not accept the proposal, and I instructed the company to pay the claim. It is, it is so tempting, and I know folks, many people are motivated. They want to, they want to be able to do something, um, and they get, uh, they get an offer that sounds too good to be true, and usually it is. And so uh, in, in the heat of the moment or with the pressure or whatever, I think it's so important that people do take a few minutes and just make sure that they um, – Understand what is being offered to them and understand what it's going to cost them because it's never free. So we've had a few physicians. Um, we do monitoring at the at the practice as well as, as evaluations and, and treatment. A few physicians over the years that have had um, a tendency to relapse about every three or four months, and you talk to them and you have the sense that they're relapsing because they have that pressure to keep the disability insurance. And... I don't know if that's necessarily a bias that you look at it when you're talking to them or or if they actually feel a pressure to have a relapse in order to keep that insurance policy. But is that something that you find yourself dealing with with, um, with your clients? Well, I can't say in honesty that the question hasn't been raised uh, from time to time. It has. And, yes, hypothetically, if someone relapses, um, I think that the company would be hard-pressed not to pay the claim. However, the way that our firm looks at these claims and uh, disability insurance, we're viewing it as a recovery tool. Firstly, we would never, ever, in any way, shape, or form, suggest that someone relapse in order to get paid. Uh, we would never do that, nor should anyone ever consider doing that. This, these benefits are we you, we help our clients use these benefits as a recovery tool. How do we do that? We help them first understand what's available, and we help them get paid for whatever benefits they have, so they can go into uh, inpatient residential care, mm-hmm. I, uh, IOP, or any other aftercare that, that's indicated, um, and to help them get through the plethora of legal issues that, that they have to deal with by taking the financial piece off their shoulders so they can focus on their health and their families and licensure issues or criminal issues or credentialing issues or whatever other things they have to deal with. 
by taking the financial piece off of them and really helping them hopefully focus on their health. Um, then if at some point in time their, their doctors support their, their ability to return back to the uh, specialty they were in using doctors, uh, the specialty they were por- performing at the time they were disabled, we can make use of the residual benefit under the policies, which I kind of touched on in the when I was talking about the LTD, the residual benefit that's available under the policies where if they can go back part-time, if they can perform um, all the duties but, but for not as much time or some of the, the duties for all the time, um, which happens to be a, a basic um, uh, definition of the pretty much the definition of residual disability, and an income loss, we can help get a supplement, um, as I said, if uh, if you to are... Match, to bring that income back to where it yes, was. so that, for example, they can return back to work, and they're afraid they might lose their claim. They're afraid that uh, of taking up, biting off more than they can chew, so to speak. A doctor may instruct them, go back go back to anesthesiology, work 20 hours a week, and see how you do. We can help them with that by getting them part of the benefit. So if they went back 20 hours a week and were making, I, I said this earlier, 50% of the money they were making before, they would be entitled to 50% of the benefit to help supplement their that road back to work. And as that those hours or activities or income is increased, we can... Um, help them with that. Of course, the benefit would be decreased, but they would be entitled to get the benefit until they reach a certain um, number, at which point the benefit would end. But the good thing about it is they can try to go back to work without the fear of losing the claim status because they're maintaining the claim status. And uh, the insurance companies are very happy when our clients are are g- returning back to work. Mm-hmm. That is what everybody wants here. So in that scenario, if they do go back to work for 20 hours and they begin having um, a return of symptoms in terms of craving or anxiety or obsession, they're able to back back yes. off and their benefit returns? Exactly. That's exactly. really good that's to exactly. know. Because that's so definitely a barrier that a lot of people will throw out in terms of going back part-time. Mm-hmm. Yes, they, they don't. They're not required to go back full time, which is the fear. Uh, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm picking the pieces of my life up. Uh, I've got this problem, that problem, the other problem. I'm, I'm new to recovery. Uh, I, I've just achieved some sort of stability with regard to my psychiatric illness. And um, this is incredible to be able to return on a restricted basis, whatever that might be, whether it's less hours or no call or uh, X amount of cases uh, where they're getting uh, a, a part of their benefit to help with that income loss, knowing that if they fail or if they can handle that uh, that amount of hours or, or, or cases or so forth, they can tweak that down and still be entitled to more benefit as they're trying to find a watermark as to what they can tolerate from an addiction standpoint, from a psychiatric standpoint in returning to work, as we hope that eventually over time they can go back to what they were doing before and to do it in a healthy way. Now, conversely, if uh, someone can't return back to what they were doing, we use the example of the anesthesiologist before but that person still has a lot to offer from a medical standpoint Um, we can help by getting that person total disability 
and then having the money available so that they can go back, retrain, um, and to do practice another specialty that would be something where they can do that in a constructive, productive way that is consistent with their health as opposed to, in that situation, anesthesiology, which is inconsistent with their health. Yeah. With their continued um, ability to, to go on. Um, we are at a break um, in a few moments, and we... If, oh, um, there. Um, sorry, we just had a, a little bit of a, a kerfuffle, but I think we're back on track. Um, in our last few minutes that we have, what have we not touched on that would be important for our listeners um, to know and understand? There's a, a couple of um, – you, you touched on this, Dr. Blank, uh, earlier in the conversation um, – there are oftentimes redundant critical mistakes and errors mm-hmm. that we see, in our case, our uh, clients make or having made before they, they retained us. Um, firstly, thinking that this is a Blue Cross Blue Shield claim. They, people don't understand the magnitude, the value of these claims. This is not um, a property damage claim mm-hmm. where your basement is flooded and it costs $10,000, you submit a bill and you get paid. That's not how this works. Before the companies pay a dime of benefit, before they accept liability or as, at the time they accept liability, they're required by law to what, what's called raise a reserve. That means to take certain amount of money out of their operating account and put it into a dedicated reserve account by law, which would theoretically then pay for the claim. Now, when we're talking about the amounts of money here, we're talking hundreds of thousands, a million, millions of dollars worth of benefits being paid under a single claim potentially. So what a company does, understanding the business end of mm-hmm. this practice, what the company is required to do, if Dr. Blank has, for example, and I'm making this up, a $10,000 a month benefit, that company may have to take a million dollars out of its operating account and put it away in a reserve account before it pays Dr. Blank a penny or her $10,000 mm-hmm. a month benefit so that... If Dr. Blank thinks I just fill some forms out, like I fill out a Blue Cross Blue Shield claim, send it in, and they're going to send me $10,000, that's not how it works. There's <laughs> tremendous resistance mm-hmm. to accepting liability because the company knows it's going to take, in this hypothetical, a million dollars out of its operating operating account as a net loss to the company and put it and put into its reserve account in order to satisfy whatever the legal requirements are. Now, secondarily... If the company has accepted liability and is paying Dr. Blank $10,000 a month, there continues to be resistance to pay that claim every single month, which, by the way, a proof of loss is required every month in these claims. It's not like you file a paperwork and send it in and they and will the pay you for the rest life. of your life. Right. No, that, that's another issue that doctors don't understand, our clients don't understand. There's tremendous resistance to continuing to pay the claim because the company knows 
if it terminates the claim, it can re- release that million-dollar reserve mm-hmm. and put that back into the operating a- account as a net gain to the company. So when you understand the magnitude, it helps you understand this is not a Blue Cross Blue Shield claim. And I'm not making fun about that, but these mm-hmm. claims are huge and worth lots of money. Um, what I often say is that the best way to understand this is this claim is your house. This claim can be bigger than your house. It can be your most valuable asset. And so we have, and you, this is what you were touching on before about the advice that people listen to that's out there, and I, I actually do a presentation on this. It's mind-boggling who they will believe, um, chat uh, chat groups and the neighbor down the street or some colleague that may have been on claim five years ago or knew somebody that was on claim or any uh, group of, of people that hold themselves out as having expertise in helping people with claims that you don't know even know who these people are. And this this is like your house. And if the if the in, if your mortgage company or the bank was trying to take away your house, what are you going to do to to save your house? Are you going to listen to somebody on the uh, that's in a chat room and the, the some internet site? You're going to listen to the neighbor down the street, some colleague, some guy that you know from wherever that says I have expertise in doing this. Um, the 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 company has a a. Uh, incredible tools at their disposal they have it's not just one of the other things doctors tend to think they're smarter than everybody else and and i'm sorry to say that (laughs) doctors out there but and they're very smart people but in this specific instance they are not smarter than the insurance company if you're dealing with a claims person that's the mouthpiece of the company behind the scenes supervisors managers legal staff, medical staff, investigative staff, all assessing the claim. And so they need someone like Mr. Seltzer. Thank you so much for being here today, and thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week on Detailing Addiction. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.